Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. For this episode, we talk about whether the recovery in stocks and shares has gone too far and what could go wrong from this point, as well as what the further record plunges in oil prices may mean to investors. With Phil Attreed, Head of Investment Consulting, Jean-Paul Yeagers, Head of Asset Allocation, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Hello and welcome to another Word on the Street midweek special. I'm Phil Attreed, Barclays Head of Investment Consulting, and I'm joined today by our ever-present Chief Investment Officer, Will Hobbs, and JP Yeagers, our Head of Asset Allocation. Welcome both. For this episode, we wanted to focus on a couple of subjects. Uh, Firstly, have stock markets rallied too far? US stocks, for example, are up a a touch over 31% off of the year lows as at Friday's close, uh, coming off a little as we talk now. Um, What could go wrong from this point? And we'll also look to touch on some of the other related questions. Um, Secondly, whilst we regularly caution against listening to overly confident statements about long-term changes, and and in particular the coronavirus, uh, or those that the coronavirus virus might bring, it it would seem remiss not to at least comment a little on some of the incredible activities of central banks and governments in these last couple of weeks. Anyway, let's start with that rally in stocks and whether it can continue. Um, JP, turning to you first, the the team must be extremely satisfied with their tactical portfolio changes in recent weeks. Stock markets have gone on to rally as you tentatively anticipated, but are there now worries that it has gone too far? The economy, is, as, as we've been saying, as we expected, is really starting to get a lot worse. And we're seeing just this week um, how badly that downturn is starting to hurt the very um, company fundamentals that we're sponsoring by owning stocks and shares. Where, where, where are our thoughts on that at the moment? Hi, Phil. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a very good point. We see that economic pain is happening at, at the moment. Uh, and here we also know that the duration matters. So the longer this takes, the larger the impact will be. Um, but we also know that financial markets are forward-looking. We know that investors know governments are doing everything they can to flatten the curves. We also know that investors know clinical trials are taking place, et cetera, et cetera. So what matters for investors is what will the likely place we find ourselves in, in say the next, in six months time. Well, a a lot of it we simply don't know at the moment, but we do see that some of the government starts slowly relaxing some of the measures. Um, And for stock markets, we've seen the bounce after the sharp fall has been very strong and very fast. And a little bit the same can be said for the policy responses that have come in very significant and very timely. So not too many concerns uh, uh, around the equity levels. What about some of the the other areas? I know the teams recently added to what some rather sensationally call junk credit, uh, basically some of the riskier parts of the lending markets. And as soon as you do that, the US Central Bank, the Federal Reserve steps in, uh, announces that it's going to buy those assets too. So that obviously then fuels a pretty sharp rally in that part of the world's capital markets as well as equities. Uh, is there much more to go for now in these assets? Uh, well, as you correctly mentioned, high-yield bonds are the more risky bonds uh, and, 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 and you would expect that a proportion of these bonds would default in times of economic hardship. Uh, we've seen prices falling and, and, and compensation for investors rising to roughly, say, 10% over government bonds. 
At those moments, we felt there was some value starting to appear for longer-term investors. Well, with the recent announcements of the U.S. Federal Reserve to start including these risky bonds in their purchase program, we've seen prices indeed being bid up again. And in that sense, it accelerates our scenario of, uh, yeah, of a pickup in, in these prices. Currently, with about 7% in addition to government bond yields, uh, we have to balance what would be the appropriate fair value in this environment and what conditions uh, we feel it has run, run its, its, its course. So that, that at the moment, the team is closely monitoring where markets are and where we would feel an appropriate fair value would sit. Okay, and, and what are your thoughts about the risks of this move by the Fed? Um, surely it's a little bit strange that the central bank is out there buying risky corporate debt. And I suppose it's not just the philosophical implications for this. What, what about moral hazard, a, a, a phrase I used a couple of weeks ago where you know, basically investors might be induced into risk-taking by government and central bank actions or policy? Yeah, that, that, yeah. That's, a, that's a very, very good point. That's something that has been happening in the recent past. So in the recent years, we've also seen slowly, slowly creeping against the boundaries of moral hazard. And, in, and what we now see is, is to some degree unprecedented in the ways uh, yeah, some of these boundaries of capitalism are being redrawn. We see that in some parts losses are being socialized. We see that uh, the question is, should we avoid defaults at all costs? And as you correctly point out, moral hazard. So when uh, the, some parts of society participate in the gains, but the, the, when losses are being socialized, it would increase risk-taking behavior, not only from investors, but also from potentially from governments. So it's, it's uh, yeah, it's, 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 you, you, see, you do see that slowly, slowly, there could be a risk that some participants in society uh, might be more willing to take or accept risks. And of course, that's, that's a very clear, uh, important point if we think about bigger picture uh, effects down the line. So, Will, let's bring you in here. Markets are obviously benefiting from this incredible response uh, to the crisis that's confronting the world's authorities all over. What about the stuff that they can't control? What are the other things that you and the team are keeping an eye on at the moment? Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's a lot that could um, that could go wrong, as always, Phil. Um, but to be honest, um, this is always the case. Um, and we shouldn't allow the fact that this time we think we can see some of the things that might go badly wrong uh, to kind of unduly influence our estimations of their likelihood, if you see what I mean. Um, now, part of this um, is trying to um, trying to put these risks in the context of the full spectrum of possibility, you know, future possibility, both positive and negative. Uh, anyway, I mean, I think for all of that, we need to keep a close eye on Asia's return to work uh, and all of the problems and indeed solutions that come with it. Um, answers to questions such as how long immunity can be expected to last, um, how effectively all the world outside of Asia get itself into, uh, uh, gets itself into a position to actually relax containment measures. And I'm talking here about adequate testing capacity, sufficient numbers of uh, contact, uh, contra uh, contact uh, tracing personnel, uh, technological capabilities, etc, etc. Now, answers to these questions, uh, or questions like these, are really going to be key to judging the ability of the world economy to get back to some semblance of normality before the arrival of a, a vaccine. Now, hopefully that comes uh, at some point in 2021 on current timetables, but conceivably those timetables are really based on everything going exactly right. So con conceivably we may be waiting a bit longer for that, um, uh, that vaccine. Now, I think 
you know, in the meantime, um, until the arrival of that vaccine, we really need to be clear that there will certainly be secondary outbreaks around the world, um, and maybe more still. Uh, you know, and, and that's really, the, you know, they'll, they'll be of the like of that we're currently seeing in in, in Singapore, um, uh, and 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 I think. The point here is that our ability to digest these secondary outbreaks, these inevitable outbreaks, without having to resort to the kind of full and incredibly economically damaging lockdown that we're all enduring um, now, will be determined by um, these factors in large part. Now, will likely be helped um, in this uh, uh, in our efforts there by kind of you know emerging successful treatments in coming months. So uh, you know we've talked a little bit about some sort of very preliminary uh, positive data on remdesivir, um, and that continues to show some promise. There are some other hopefuls, you know, blood plasma and so on that treatments uh, that are also being tested, and and, and several others. Um, as well. Now that should help uh, if any of those are successful and they emerge. For inpatients, that may help to lower the case fatality rate and ease intensive care and wider healthcare capacity strains. We may also be helped a little bit by you know the sizable increases in hospital surge capacity that we're already seeing and better public preparation and indeed uh, better p- public understanding of the kind of necessary social protocols. Uh, and we will also likely have much better information. Uh, information is coming in all the time on the virus itself. Um, in terms of kind of vital questions as to the size of the population that seems to suffer uh, no symptoms, the actual case fatality rate, uh, and other such kind of vital contexts. We've we've really got a lot to keep our eye on, uh, and that's not even mentioning uh, you know, the potential for uh, regime change in North Korea, which people are worrying about overnight uh, with Kim Jong-un uh, obviously uh, ailing a little bit. Um, you've got oil stresses and, uh, you know, all of the other kind of um, uh, uh, incredible stuff that's going on right now. And that's going to keep us busy for a while, you suspect. Yeah, as you say, lot, lots more for us to, to know. And obviously, keep an eye on, I'm sure everyone's very anxious uh, for, for a lot of that news. I did pick up uh, on a on you quoting Milton Friedman on the podcast the other day, and I wanted to just touch on that. So paraphrasing the quote, there is n- nothing so permanent as a temporary government project. What does it mean if some of these policy measures that we've been seeing do in fact stick around? What does that mean for the world we live in and, and the world that we invest in? Well, it's too early to tell, obviously, um, but we can indulge in a bit of, uh, you know, relatively harmless speculation, I think, to try and give you uh, a sense of just how complicated this question is. Uh, So one example centres on something called, um, you know, potential changes to the savings ratio. Now, this is a measure that describes the proportion of our earnings, our take home pay uh, that we decide to save. Now, uh, there are loads of things that go into this ratio, uh, but you tend to say that kind of nervous citizens, nervous employees would tend to have a higher savings ratio. Um, They would save a higher proportion of what they earn. Now, this is actually, as it goes, one of the more uh, 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 intuitive economic theories as it goes. Uh, But you heard our CEO for uh, Barclays UK, Matt Hammerstein, talk about this on, uh, on last week's podcast. In reference to this crisis, he was basically pointing out that there is the potential for certain parts of the most, uh, you know, certain of the most effective parts of the economy and labour force uh, to be, you know, scarred by the efforts to contain this virus for uh, for a long time. Um, now, in that in that situation, it'd be easy to imagine that this cohort of the economy, the workforce, uh, may choose to save more of their earnings in the future for that now very vivid rainy day. Now, you know that if that sentiment was sufficiently widespread, if you think about it, slower growth would likely be slower economic growth would likely be um, uh, 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 likely be the result. Now, a fascinating question: If this did play out like that. 
would centre on the differences between countries and cultures. So would there be any modes of organising your country that provide a more effective cushion in these circumstances? In this context, could it could this be among the factors that seriously and permanently undermines those who would argue for, uh, you know, so-called small government? Um, uh, will those countries with a more complete social safety net see a lesser bump in the savings ratio? Uh, I realise I'm asking questions, answering questions with questions, which is really all I've got. But uh, it, it just shows how complicated this question is, how interesting, uh, you know, it may prove to be uh, from hindsight. And these are just some of the questions that are being asked um, right um, uh, uh, right now. Great. And let's uh, let's just touch on oil. Uh, lots of uh, goings on there. I'm looking at my screen at the moment. I've heard the team talk about sharply lower oil prices. Obviously, we've been seeing for a while now. Them being a negative for the global economy in the short run, but a bit more of a positive further out. Um, I mean, to put into context, today's intraday sort of fall in prices is the largest that we've seen. That must come with some risks um, and indeed potential for maybe longer term structural changes. Uh, so, yes, I mean, uh, for sure, um, there is. Yesterday was really a, an unbelievable um, day with prices for um, the West Texas Intermediate uh, May contract uh, falling 306 percent to uh, just shy of minus 40 dollars a barrel um you heard that correctly this is you know the the first time in history that the uh, uh, so-called front month contract has fallen into um into negative territory um and 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 i think there's there's a couple of points um to make here first thing first Yes, um, the demand supply fundamentals are terrible uh, for oil right now. Uh, so you've had a great big chunk of global oil demand has obviously disappeared uh, with the attempts to contain the coronavirus, uh, meaning that even dr- dramatically reduced supply, as per the recent agreement between major producers, uh, you know, US, Saudi Arabia, Russia, and so on, um, will still swamp. You know, all of that excess supply is still swamping markets. We've been talking about, uh, you know, the the the, the the running out, the the, the uh, diminishing capability of us uh, uh, being able to actually store all of the excess oil. However, um, there are um, important technical factors also um, here, likely to sort of you know magnify, also him sort of helping to magnify this story. Uh, so a little bit of um, I'll try and give you a little bit of the basics to try and unpack this technical story a little bit. Um, so oil futures contracts um, they relate to specific delivery periods, as I'm sure you know, I'm teaching grannies to sell kegs here. But uh, the current front month contract is um, by the time you listen to this was uh, this is a con- contract for crude oil d- was delivered in May. Um, now this contract actually expired today. Day, uh, with the front month now um, shifting on to June. Now, for the oil market, um, two of the major variants are called uh, West Texas Intermediate, also known as Texas Light uh, Sweet, uh, sweet because of its sulfur content, not anything else, um, or WTI, uh, and Brent. Now, um, for WTI, unlike Brent, these contracts are settled through physical delivery. So the owner of the contract on the day of expiry will get barrels of oils delivered. Um, now, the oil market has a large number of um, financial players, players who are not able to take physical delivery. So these participants will always need to sell their, for, uh, their forward contracts ahead of uh, today's expiry uh, to physical players who can actually receive those barrels. So the long short is that the capacity to store the stuff is running out uh, and this is creating serious dislocations uh, in oil prices in the very short term. Um, what about all the effects of all of this? So um, so the June contract at time uh, the, as we're speaking, uh, Phil is, is currently just above uh, zero. Um, 
and I think, well, you know, there will be some operators, um, countries and companies who are now under a severe amount of financial stress. Um, you know, credit and equity markets have been moving to incorporate this over the last couple of months. And there were, there were further moves yesterday, though. Uh, again, some are arguing that the presence of the Federal Reserve as a kind of buyer of uh, last resort within the junk credit complex, which has obviously got a very indexes very highly in oil uh, companies in the US, maybe perhaps, perhaps curbing some of this uh, uh, reaction. That wouldn't be too surprising. But much like other parts of the uh, the world economy uh, that are being sort of seriously stressed by containment. And remember, the oil markets really tap into most of that suffering through a number of strands. Um, a lot of this demand strike will be temporary, or some of this demand strike will certainly be temporary. A matter of a couple of quarters, um, followed by uh, some rebound in demand that should see that demand supply imbalance improve a little bit. So two years out, you've got futures prices for oil. Um, they're materially higher um, and they are, uh, but, but admittedly still not at a level that would allow many players uh, in the industry to actually make money, particularly not uh, those are the sort of more expensive um, geographies. Um, in terms of a wider economic um, effects, remember that lower oil prices um, uh, 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 sort of facilitate an important transfer of wealth from the few who control the world's oil resources to the many who make use of those resources. This tends to lower the savings ratio of the world over time, uh, perhaps offsetting some of that sort of extra caution amongst consumers we just spoke of. Um, and that is because the better off you are, the more you can and therefore tend to save of your earnings proportionally. So if you transfer wealth from the uh, rich to the masses, very simplistically, uh, you should see a decline in the so-called um, savings ratio over time. We shall see. Um, we've got to get through to the other side of, uh, of containment, as with so many things at the moment. That short term is going to involve severe stress in certain um, oil producing actors. Um, the US sector, for its part, is kind of being backstopped um, by the Federal Reserve based on, uh, or at least its supply, its funding stream um, is being backstopped, uh, backstopped at the moment by the by the US central bank. Um, but some of the things to watch will be sort of, you know, exposed uh, emerging market countries. You know, I mean, the interesting, one other interesting point, just to sort of, in, in a side, back to the sort of structural themes you talked about, some are arguing that, you um, the context for this, um, for these price declines, is actually that this is the end game. We're, we're in the. This is all part of the oil end game, uh, and that people don't, or producers don't, uh, feel uh, the ability, or don't sense the ability to actually keep oil in the ground uh, for a day when oil prices might be higher. Uh, because what they're feeling now is that market share now is more important than uh, better prices. Uh, in the future so uh, that's way too uh, early but just to give you a sense of some of the sort of some of the chatter that's uh, accompanying um, this oil price decline and of course when uh, when that demand does come back it's uh, because of the levels of supply even given the recent cut it looks like they're going to have quite a bit to quite a bit to get through um, in terms of the supply that will be out there whether it's floating or in some of the sort of fixed capacity um, to the, in in the US um, JP, just coming back to you, any final thoughts from yourself? Oh, well, as it, uh, however unnerving these times can be for many uh, investors, we do know that uh, yeah, this time for investing can, is, is as good as any. For long-term investors, it's, it's all about being invested in the market, and we typically see that the starting point then becomes less relevant. 
So all that is left to say is, well, stay well and stay safe. Thank you, JP. Thank you, Will. We'll look to wrap it up there. Thank you again to our listeners for joining us for this Word on the Street special. Nikki and Will will return at the end of the week, this time, I think, with Mike Haslam, our fund specialist. Uh, amongst other things, they'll be exploring what we've been seeing from the active fund managers that we employ to manage our clients' money. We hope you'll be able to join us then. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.